This is Matt Penninger with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we'll be looking each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you doing, Paul? Fine, thanks, Matt. So this week, we'll be looking at a minnow and a giant among Asian nations. I will be looking at Laos with Ngao Suksavan from RFA's Laos service. As the United States prepares next week to inaugurate a new president, Laos has been undergoing its own leadership change. Although mechanics of how that happens are very communist and very different to here. The top figures are anointed at a five-year party congress, where the profiles of Marx and Lenin still adorn the backdrop of the conference hall. So in the best traditions of Asian criminology, we'll be looking at who's up and who's down in the party hierarchy. First up, though, Paul, you're delving into the rather dark arts of Chinese state media and how they've been covering the events in Washington, D.C. this month. Yes, Matt, and it probably was a propagandist dream if you're sitting in Beijing. And today, to look at that, we have the pleasure of inviting RFA Mandarin service reporter Jane Tong to discuss how the media propaganda machine treated the January 6th riots right here in Washington. Jane is originally from Taiwan. She came to RFA a little over a year ago after a decade working for the Chinese Quality Press, premier Chinese language media publications known as Tsai Jing, Tsai Xin, and then Xina, a news portal. She spent a decade in Beijing, Taipei, New York, and finally here in Washington, where she served as Sina's bureau chief and White House correspondent for the first three years of the Trump administration, explaining U.S. affairs to a Chinese audience. Okay, well, take it away. Look forward to this. Thank you, Matt. Jane's reporting for RFA, in addition to covering daily news, often takes very interesting angles on U.S.-China communications and miscommunications, Twitter diplomacy, media spats, and even overall soft power competition. It is those unique angles that caught our eye and that make Jane's stories popular selections to translate for our English readers at RFA. I found your story the day after January 6th in Washington and how the Chinese media took those events and ran with them particularly fascinating. Jane, what did the Chinese state media do in their reporting on January 6th that was different from what other media around the world would do? Hi, Paul. Great to be here. Well, just a few hours after the scene unfolded at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, um, Chinese propaganda machines stepped it up a gear on mocking the United States and especially its democratic system. Um, one example is the Global Times accusing the U.S. of hypocrisy after its politicians support the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. I think we've seen China was especially keen to make comparison with the January 6th attack on U.S. Congress and the storming of Hong Kong Legislative Council in 2019. Um, even Chinese foreign minister spokesperson responded to the incident in a slightly mocking tone on how U.S. is using double standard on calling these people rioters. What Chinese propaganda is doing is deliberately confusing the reason, the demands, and the nature of two incidents. To me, it's a, a very cheap comparison by CCP, the CCP propagandist. Um, to put it in an easier way, um, in Hong Kong's case, I think people were demanded an unelected government to implement a fair and open electoral system 
which is, of course, fundamentally different from what we've seen here in Washington. Was there anything surprising about that to you and your experience following the Chinese media, or is this standard practice? You know, yes and no. It's a very standard operation when it comes to the shortcomings of the democratic system. Chinese official and state-run media won't miss the opportunity to showcase and highlight how chaotic it can be. However, I was surprised by how widely this incident was covered by Chinese media and how widely it was allowed to be discussed on social media platform. It looked a little unusual to me. And the, the reason I said that is in the past four years, the, the Chinese propaganda machine was in general more constrained in some way when it comes to US related issues. When I say constrained, I mean, we might see the coverage from Sado Media, but the central propaganda department might have orders to the online platform or social media platforms that they should turn off the discussion or commenting function when they repost the article. And they cannot do any original report other than basically, you know, copy and paste whatever Sado Media wrote. This is to avoid any provocative language being used to jeopardize the US-China relation or ongoing negotiations. So that's new, I guess. It has something to do with the transition of US administration. Um, China feel more comfortable or more confident to let this type of anti-American, mocking America rhetoric to come out. True. I, I must say my first exposure to Chinese media mm -hmm. distorting or telling only part of a story was way back in 1999 during the war between NATO and Yugoslavia when NATO came in to try to stop the, uh, the slaughter of Muslims and other uh, minorities in that complicated war. The Chinese media basically took Serbia's side and ran with very strong pro-Milosevic, anti-Clinton propaganda. And this was at a time when Bill Clinton was, despite his uh, scandal, was generally appreciated in China because he was behind the efforts to get China into the WTO. But they treated, they put a Hitler mustache on Clinton at one uh, point. And, you know, this is, of course, before the airplanes struck the Chinese embassy in which uh -huh. three journalists, three state media journalists were killed. And it became a whole nother crisis. But uh, how about in your career covering China and the United States? Can you think of other examples of recent or outstanding examples of how they spin it to serve uh, the party's interests? Well, the, the, the core of spinning the story is, is to control the public opinion. So to answer your question, I was thinking, you know, I remember back in 2018 and 19, during the period of high tensions between Washington and Beijing on trade war. Mm -hmm. I remember getting the order not allowing us to cover anything, anything related to U.S.-China relations. The only people in D.C. who are allowed to write about it were state-owned media journalists, you know, Xinhua, CCTV, China Daily. So, you know, one day I remember feeling very frustrated that I was at the USTR, the White House, the whole day trying to cover the ongoing negotiation, but later found out we were not allowed to write anything and we couldn't even post a picture. On the other hand, some journalists from Chinese state media also complained to me because all their coverage need to go through the Chinese embassy first and wait for the approval. The article, the photos, you know, the, the video. So imagine that it's like 
you said when you're your day in China, AP or Realtors or New York Times need to go through get the approval from their embassy before filing their story. It's odd. Sometimes they go over time to, to suppress what isn't particularly bad news or it's just factual news. Um, I agree. It's sometimes the control is unpredictable. You would just be surprised. Like, why is this sensitive? Why do they want us to not write about it? Chinese media has a 70-year history, of course, with originally Xinhua, at least, and the People's Daily are kind of the lips and teeth and throat of the party. But they have modernized and they've gotten big budgets to try to tell China's story well, as Xi Jinping once said. But still, I don't think they have a lot of weight or respect outside of China. And I say that with the exception of your former outfit, because that is considered must reading the, the Tsai Xin, Tsai Jing financial magazines and uh, websites and analysis was is still considered the gold standard of, of what they call quality press in China. But when we talk about the state media and the, the sort of driving force of the party's message, it now has gleaming studios, but it, is it doing any better in terms of winning people over or meeting any sort of journalistic standards? This question remind me of an interview I did just a few months ago with a veteran Chinese journalist, Li Datong, and he told me even tomorrow all the Chinese media are disappear. Nothing would happen. People won't care. But, you know, I, I think he only speak for a certain group of Chinese people who has ability to filter and to distinguish what message they should take in, what they should not. I would say um, the big investment in state-owned media in China has big impact domestically. And with the information control, it has very significantly impact how Chinese general public think. I remember the other story I did on Chinese farmer in Shandong. They were forced to leave their villages. And these villagers were complaining to me about how terrible the local government are. But they still praise Xi Jinping, still praise, you know, CCP, even hoping he to be the, the savior for their struggles. So that really struck me how this whole system and message control can really shift the public's mind. On the other hand, I'm not so sure this, like you say, the, the, the ambition of Xi Jinping on telling Chinese story better to the world is working very well right now. Because, you know, there's just, we've seen a lot of debunk misinformation and effort from the free world when, you know, Chinese propaganda machine trying to spin their story on the international stage. I want to return briefly to January 6th, which is now more than a week ago. Mm -hmm. Is there anything new on the Chinese state media since then in terms of following it up or analyzing it and taking it forward through the impeachment and uh, on to the inauguration? <laughs> that, that's a very good and important question. Um, Chinese media seem to tone down a little bit when it comes to impeachment. And the basic reason is to avoid comparison of the two system and to avoid any further discussion from the public. And, you know, this goes to your early question on how I'm a little surprised how widely the incident was covered and allowed to discuss on social media platform. For example, people in China might know there are protests in Hong Kong, but you would be surprised how little they know about the real reason, the demand and the nature of the protests. And when it comes to covering the impeachment, it's almost inevitable that people will start asking. So 
How do we impeach a leader? Um, why do we not having these processes? And when it comes to people in the US can go on the street, express their opinion peacefully, they can publicly criticize or challenge their politician. How about China? So yeah, I remember uh, at the time when I was still working in the Chinese media, there's one specific order saying, turn off all the commenting function when the article can somehow be compared to the Chinese system or to imply the shortcoming of Chinese leaders. So this is how they operate. In the time you've been working for RFA, it's been a dramatic year in US-China relations, almost a tireless job to follow all the developments. Just the rhetoric coming out of Washington alone is a full-time job. But uh, we also saw tit-for-tat expulsions of US and Chinese journalists. I personally know some of the individuals affected by it, but it's it's not an exaggeration to say that some of the best U.S. journalistic eyes on China were removed from the country and now have to cover it remotely, just like we do at Radio Free Asia. Mm-hmm. Some of them could not even go to Hong Kong because, of course, Hong Kong was then under the national security law, so they're in Taiwan or they're elsewhere. When a Chinese state media reporter or columnist or editor is sent home, Does it change? Does it mean anything in the sense that they were contributing to Chinese understanding of the U.S., or is it just a job that another person will fill? You know, in the past few years especially, I think members of the Chinese state-owned media find themselves in a very tough spot, how to be a serious journalist while also being a loyal propagandist. So when I first started my journalist career in 2009 in China, what, what drove me as a native Taiwanese into a newsroom in Beijing was, was that hope, that mission I've seen from Chinese journalists. I'm talking about more independent journalists working in Chinese media like Taixin, Taijing, even some editor and colleagues I, I work with in China. A lot of them get their master's degree in the U.S. They went back to China hoping to get to be part of the voice that pushed the society to change and only to find out that space of freedom of speech was being squeezed more and more over time. By the time I left Chinese media in 2019, you know, I think I think most of my mentor, a lot of investigate journalists were not working in this industry anymore. I'd say 80% of them left journalism. And to me, it's a very, very dark era for most Chinese writers that want to pursue a, a real journalist career in China. The one thing that fascinates me is given how some things have gone in the United States these last years, China seemed to have a golden opportunity to boost its brand and to boost its soft power, mm-hmm. uh, at, at least at America's expense, and maybe even British expense because of Brexit and some other things. But have they done that? Or have they missed another opportunity I do in some way think this is how they think it will be the perfect time for them to upper their game on promoting themselves. However, the strategy and the storytelling, and it's just not convincing. I don't think they have found a way to really connect with international audience yet. They might learn the form, they might know the, the game on Twitter, on YouTube, to produce this video and sarcasm piece, but it's just not there. And again, to the Western world, like when we watched it and we read it, we're just like, no, this is not acceptable. And this is, we're not buying it. 
Well, thank you for your time, Jane. And I always look forward to your stories. Thank you, Paul. Very good to be here. Next, for an update on Lao politics, we're going to turn to Matt Pennington. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. Not VOA, but EOA. It stands for Eyes on Asia. So now we turn to Laos, where the internal politics of the ruling elite is just about as opaque as China's. In many ways, Laos has changed beyond recognition in recent years. The capital, Vientiane, has grown exponentially. There's been a hydropower dam building spree, and China's economic influence looms larger than ever. But there's one constant, the political monopoly of the Lao People's Revolutionary Party, which took power 45 years ago just before communist rule began in neighboring Vietnam. This week has been the party congress, which takes place every five years. Here to discuss what happened at the congress, which ended today, that's January the 15th, is Ungao Suksavan of RFA's Laos service. Welcome, Ungao. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about the outcome of this congress today? I understand there's a new party leader. So who is he and who does he replace? Tang Lun Sisulit is the former prime minister, is appointed to be a secretary general of the Lao People's Revolutionary Party that replaces 84 years old former secretary general Munyang Warajit, who stepped down. That means the generation of the hardline leaders who fight with armed forces comes to an end. Tang Lun graduated from former Soviet Union. He's the leader like a dove. Not Hawk. So he's he's regarded as being less hardline than Bunyang? Yes. Okay. So Tonglun has quite a good reputation in Lao circles, I think, because he's at least made some effort to fight corruption. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, what happened is when he was a prime minister, he tried to fight against the corruption, including the illegal lockings. He tried to turn the cars from the national leaders to be their public properties. Like, so their motor vehicles were, became public property? Yes. So he's taken some steps to fight corruption. He's still quite an old guy. He's 75, 76, but he's like a second generation leader. He, he wasn't one of those guys who was fighting in the revolution back in the 60s. Tell us, who is new in the Politburo? The last terms, there were 11... Politburo members, but right now they have 13 Politburo members. So the news are Kikiao Kai Kampitun, the current Minister of Information, Culture and Tourism. The second is Lieutenant General Vilay La Khamphong, Minister of the Public Security. The third is Ms. Sisai Ludet Munson. She's the former chairwoman of the La Women's Union. And the fourth is Salem Sai Komashit, Minister of the Foreign Affairs, who close to Tong Lun Sisulit, Secretary General. So Salem Sai, it would be one face among the Lao leadership that outsiders might be familiar with, because he's the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He seems to be younger than other people in the Politburo. Yes, he's the last one in the 
list of the Politburo members. Among these other new people in the Politburo, are there any others who have allegiance to, to other leaders? So, uh, Lieutenant General Vilay Lagamfong, people said he's close to the former Secretary General Bunyang Borajits. Okay. How about women in the Politburo? Right now, they have the two. The first is Padija Chotu, who is the president of the Lao National Assembly. And the second is just only Sisai Ludet Munson. She's a former chairwoman of the Lao Women's Union. Okay, and she's one of the, the new people. So at the moment, the president is uh, Bunyang Voracit, outgoing secretary general, and the prime minister is Tonglun Sisalit, the new secretary general. Do we know yet who is going to be the new president and who's going to be the new prime minister? They do not declare the names of president and the name of the prime ministers yet. So they have to wait until the general elections is complete in February. And it is expected that the Tonglun will sit as the president of the Lao PDR for the post of prime minister's office is not officially declared yet who will be. The Politburo members who will be the Prime Minister should be the second persons to the sixth persons in the name list of the Politburo. But the thing is that it allows when the national leaders are met, it must be according to the quotas of the North and of the South Okay. Tonglun, if he's the president, he comes from Huapan province in the north, I understand. So the prime minister might come from the south. So who would be the candidates within those top spots in the Politburo who could potentially be prime minister? After Tonglun is that Pankam Vipawan, who is the native of the north as well. Or it will be Saisompon uh, Pongvihan, is the son of the late President Kaison Pombihan, will be the next Prime Minister. Okay, so he's the son of Kaison Pombihan, the guy whose statue sits in all the different Lao district capitals and provincial capitals and in the conference hall of the party, party congress. He's like seen as being the founding leader of the party, right? Yes, uh, the government of the Lao Pida make him a hero. Do you think that the general population regard him as a hero? In general, people do not recognize that he is the hero. But among the party and among the governments, try to upgrade and try to promote him as a hero of the country. So in the party congress, Ungao, what were the key problems that were identified by the party leaders as the issues that are facing Laos in the, in the next five years? Right. In the next five years, the outstanding problem for Lao leaders is the poverty reduction, uh, financial crisis, and debts right now. In addition, there would be the issue of the health care and education as well. That is the big challenge for the new leaders. You mentioned one of the problems identified by party leaders is foreign debt that Laos has. How has Laos got into this situation? According to the... World Bank estimation, the debt levels cover 68% of Lao GDP in 2020. 
it is a huge issue for the new leaders to solve it. Lao cannot pay back the debts. It is not made public how much Lao falls in China's debts. China took control of Lao power grids of electricity in September 2020. I mean, I, I read a report in the Nikkei Asian Review that said that Laos had about $20 billion in debt. And, you know, maybe half of that was to, to China. So what do ordinary Lao people make of this party congress? Do they care about, you know, the party congress and what comes out of it? I have talked to ordinary people and they told me that it is a power transition for the national leaders. It is not relevant to their daily lives. A retired official whom I talked to says that the new leaders and new directive of the party congress resolution does not make any change for his life. So it is like an old wine in the new bottom. I get you. Did the Party Congress tackle any issues of human rights? Party Congress never, never talked about the human rights issue. So people's lands are grabbed by the development projects. Land rights defenders are arrested for land conflict. Blockers who criticize the government are arrested for defaming the state and the party. Sombat Sompon, who is a senior Lao development worker, was enforcedly disappeared. This problem still remained unsolved. Does the Party Congress, um, is it broadcast on national TV? Is it, is it broadcast live? Uh, it is controlled by the state media. So when it comes to the sensitive issue, it is not broadcasted. In general, people do not get access to the critical issues that the Party Congress talk about. Gail, thank you very much for sharing your insights on who's up and who's down in the Lao Communist Party hierarchy. You are welcome. So we'll keep doing our best to keep track of events in Laos, which gets less attention than it deserves, I think, from the world's media, with the fine exception of RFI, I like to think. Thanks, Paul, for your segment on China. It'll be interesting to see how the state media covers the inauguration of Joe Biden this coming week. It sure will, Matt. Uh, it may be a reset for people around the world, but China and the United States have a very complex relationship. And the state media in China are a big player in setting public tone in China towards the United States and other countries at odds with Beijing. OK, well, watch that closely. Anyway, listeners, please join us again. Um, next week. Until then, you can read RFA coverage on all the stories we've been talking about on our website. That's rfa.org. Our past podcasts are also at rfa.org, or you can catch them on other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've got any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. That stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia, alongside Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again 